Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, Steve. (laughs) It is such a pleasure to be here to be in conversation with you about this really important book. Um, Before I dive into talking to you, and even before I introduce you, I just wanted to point out that Steve really was so early anticipating the public elevation of talk and action and worry and movement around our democracy. Long before the current season, he was there, and I really appreciated you both sounding the alarm and helping to get us organized to do what we needed to do. But what a place we've landed at the moment. Democracy is truly in crisis. It is truly in crisis. And if it was one of those things that we thought was just always going to be around, we have come to understand that it won't be around if we don't do something to build it, save it, protect it. And it's come into crisis in the most stark way because what we have is a moment in which it is quite clear that many of the people in this country are more than willing to put white supremacy above democracy, that racial superiority is more important than democracy. If there's any doubt about the truth of that, you just have to reflect back to the parading of the Confederate flag through the Capitol or just reflect on the fact that over 400 bills in 49 states, some within 24 hours of the last election, have been put into place to make it more difficult for people to vote with the understanding that that difficulty is going to fall disproportionately on people of color. As we think about the peril that we're in, it causes us to have to recognize the excitement of the moment that is in front of us. We are a world nation. We're a world nation, and that is such an asset. We are already multiracial. We're not becoming multiracial. We are multiracial. The last election was an example of how a multiracial coalition, and the multiracial includes people who are white, focused on how to be able to think about the future, could come together and decide the presidency. It was exciting in terms of the possibility, but we see the pushback. I just think that this book just couldn't be more timely, given where we are. And I'm so glad that we have the opportunity to talk about the book. Um, Steve Phillips. I've known Steve Phillips for so long, I won't even go into all of that. (laughs) But uh, we, early, when I was practicing law at Public Advocates, he was an intern there. Um, But Steve Phillips really is a national political leader. He's the founder of Democracy in Color, and he is the host of the podcast Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. You also know that Steve Phillips really helped us to find the language for what was happening in the nation with his book, Brown is the New White. Steve practiced civil rights and employment law for many years, and his new book, How We Win the Civil War, offers an in-depth look at the existential battle between those who are fighting to make America a thriving multiracial democracy and those who are clinging to a past that never was clinging to a concept that really never really existed, a fundamentally white nation. Never has it been, and it certainly is not now. Steve, welcome to the Commonwealth Club. When I look, Let yeah. me just thank, well, thank you, Angela, for mm. making the time to be here, and thank everyone for coming. And I think on the way down here, I was like, it would be fun to talk to Angela about where we are at at this point in time and that we have known each other for a long time. And, I, and um, my, my wife Susan's watching, I believe, on TV. She, talk, she still tells the story of the one of the first times you guys had lunch, like almost 30 years ago. She doesn't like olives, and you would take her olives and actually eat them. I um, do that. Yes. <laughs> but we, we've been on this journey for a long time. You civil rights, social change. I think that, you know, we really should be, uh, I should have had a bio for you and the work oh. that you have done and Policy Link and all of really trying to 
lay out a vision for this country. And so I really wanted to first, you know, honor that, but also say genuinely, I was like, this is a good moment to, for Angela and I to think about, and talk about where are we at now? I absolutely agree. Thank you for that. And let's get into it. How we win the Civil War, a lot of people think we already did. Um, why do you say, think that we are at a point where this is the good title for a book? Why is it that we might be at a point where we still have to think about winning the Civil War? Well, it's interesting because I, I, I don't want to say I convinced myself, but I thought it was, it, it did start out as a, as a theoretical construct mm-hmm. in that looking at how much Trump had divided the country, et cetera. And I was like, well, let's, let's use it as a theoretical construct. And the more I began to do the research and to really analyze all of what had actually gone on in terms of how this the Civil War came about and where we're at, I am fully convinced, and I hope I've made the argument in the book, that there has been an unending effort to continue that war. Most uh, uh, immediately, right, in terms of the assassination of Lincoln. And it's just fascinating. There's a new book out now on the biography of Lincoln, and Lincoln is so held up as the model of what leadership should be. We should look at Lincoln, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't know until I started working on this book that he was assassinated five days after the supposed surrender at Appomattox. Um, uh, John Wilkes Booth heard him give a speech like two days after the surrender where he talked about limited black voting rights. And he says, that's N-word citizenship. That's the last speech he'll ever give. Six months prior, maybe it was a year prior, Booth had written a whole thing about white you know, uh, uh, supremacy and whites are better, you know. This is who assassinated Lincoln mm-hmm. immediately after the, after the supposed surrender. So how was that surrendering in terms of, the, of that? And the other piece that's very interesting, which, <clears throat> frankly, only more recently come to appreciate, is that the Civil War itself was the result of people being mad that the candidate backed by black people won the election and refusing to accept the election results. That is exactly how the Civil War began. It's the South, South Carolina succeeded three weeks after, and then a few, uh, a couple months later, the rest of them succeeded, including with uh, um, the author of Gone with the Wind writing that fortunately Georgia did not succeed during uh, December because that would have messed with the Christmas holidays. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> so just from that beginning, and then if you, just, you, you can really fast forward it, right, in that you know, we had a brief period of Reconstruction, 10 years, which then was uh, abandoned and taken away. The Klan rises specifically to terrorize and stop black people from participating. They pull out from the South, give the South back to the slave owners, and then we had 100 years of legalized white supremacy. So that's not, stop, that's not ending the Civil War. That's not conceding. That's not, that's not surrendering. So that, I think that's like a fast-forwarding piece. And then it's just like the more you start to dig into all of the pieces, the way that they've written after the Brown versus Board of Education come, came down, they shut down entire school districts rather than have them be de- desegregated. So if you dig into it, you know, dig too far, you see that there has been an unrelenting effort to continue to make this uh, a white nation, which was what the essence of the Confederacy was. And so it's actually, I think, not even that controversial when you look at the actual facts that the Confederates and their ideological and genealogical heirs have never stopped fighting that fight. Never. And you open the book with the choice between democracy and whiteness. Um, And that's just so interesting to put it right out there because the suggestion is that if the fight for whiteness in terms of the superiority of it is successful, democracy is dead. That it really is an either or. Um, And... When you think about the founding of the nation, I've been doing a lot of looking at the founders because I've been looking at how do we really get to a thriving multiracial democracy. And it's so clear that we really are, we, those who want to see a thriving society, we really do lean into democracy. But when you read about the framers and who they were and the way that they lived and that they owned slaves and the compromises they quickly made in terms of stepping away from any thought about what freedom really means, when you think about that and you embrace democracy, I I call that understanding that it is possible that the founders punched way above their moral weight. 
that it is a good idea, democracy, but it was way above their moral weight. And we've been moving along all this time. Talk about this, the choice between democracy and whiteness. Right. So I, I well, it's interesting to talk about the founding fathers piece is that and it's interesting framing this, you know, about their moral weight, because I think mm-hmm. about I, I talk in the in the epilogue about how the we need a new social contract and the current social contract is actually a series of compromises with white supremacists. Mm-hmm. And so starting with the uh, Declaration of Independence. Right. So Thomas Jefferson. So this is the thing about above his moral weight. So obviously mm-hmm. there's a lot of issues in terms of Thomas Jefferson. But he did put into the first draft of the Declaration of Independence a condemnation of the slave trade. Mm-hmm. That was the, supposed to be in the actual document, and the southern slave owners made him take it out. And so this was a compromise. So this document that we hold up as a you know, core example of our country, from the start, was a compromise with white supremacists. So that's this interesting you know, piece around the, yeah, uh, around the founders. And then the, the piece about the uh, choice between democracy and whiteness, that, that's a, a, a phrase that Taylor Branch uttered the historian who wrote The Parting the Waters, when he was in a conversation with Isabel Wilkerson, she recounted in her book, Cast, which is an amazing book, in terms of really, it was such an inspiration to me. And they were talking about the rise of um, white domestic terrorism under Trump. And he was attributing it to the fears around the racial demographic revolution within the country. And he says that people said they would not stand for being a minority in their own country. The real question is, if they were given a choice between democracy and whiteness, how many would choose whiteness? And, and Wilkerson says, we let that hang in the air for a moment, neither of us willing to hazard a guest. And that's exactly what we had on, this, on, on January 6th, is that we had, and this is also the advantage of being able to write a book, you get the chance to step back and think about it. All 50 governors in this country, Democrats and Republicans, certified the election results of 2020. And those results said that Joe Biden was elected the, the president. And so that's democracy. And Donald Trump, and Tony Hughes, coach, talk about you know, the first uh, uh, white president. Oh, he's the first white president. But certainly the latest, you know, unapologetically white nationalist president defending white, uh, uh, the Confederates, talking about, you know, why are people coming from these asshole countries, go back where you came from. This man wanted to stay in power, despite the democratic outcome of the election. And then people carrying the Confederate flag, shouting racial slurs at the black police officers in the Capitol, stormed the Capitol, hunted down the elected officials to block democracy. And so it was a very direct conflict between is this a white nation or are we going to have this multiracial democracy, which, you know, uh, with its creakiness, nonetheless worked and had an election. They did not want to accept it. And I think the other thing about it, which is interesting at this moment, is that like, we're here in San Francisco you know, not only seven miles, seven miles, maybe three, four miles from Nancy Pelosi's house. And where there was an attempted assassination of the Speaker of the, of the House just a few, a few days ago. And part of what I, I talk about in the book of, of, of this whole Confederate battle plan is silently sanctioning terrorism. And the writer Julia Aoffi has this quote about, she looks at like Putin, what he had done, says, their role is just to set the context. The, the terrorists, do take care of doing the rest. And so we're almost four years exactly out from the um, attack, the, the attack in the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh um, in 2018, which occurred at the end of the week at which Trump started attacking the Central American caravan and saying that there were bad people and terrorists coming to our country from that. And so they put this out into the, into the air and then this guy in Pittsburgh believes that this synagogue is connected to providing support to them. And he goes and he shoots and kills 12 people. So this is still defending the whiteness of this nation in a ways that are very, very present and immediate. And it remains a, a fundamental challenge. Are we going to minimally are we going to punish Trump and are we going to hold them accountable? But let alone are the people going to try to reelect him president? And so we are very much in this point in time engaged in this fight. Is it going to be a white country or is it going to be a multiracial democracy? And it's unresolved. You know, I want to get to the conversation about the liberation battle plan because it's so hopeful and there's so much there. But I don't want to skip over too quickly what is a good portion of the book. Congratulations on this book. I've read it. This is a good book. It's a good book. <laughs> and, and what I really liked about it 
is that there's a simplicity to this book that what Steve does is he gets you into what some of rhythm. He gets you into rhythmic thinking about where we've been and where we're going. And the first part of the rhythm is never give an inch, ruthlessly rewrite the laws, distort public opinion, silently sanction terrorism and play the long game. If you want to say something about that, I would welcome it. I'm going to go to the liberation plan, but I just think... How did you come to think that through so clearly and then apply it over 150 years? Well, I do want to I do want to thank and salute the team of people, mm. the entire Democracy and Color team who one put up with me during all of this. And then <laughs> um, I had a you know, Charlene Chang, my book editor on both this last book and, and this mm-hmm. book. And um, Caitlin Damascian was our researcher throughout this whole process. And so I really have the, the, the it was not just me. And it was hard, hard to piece all these different things together. So there's that. But then you dig into the research and you actually see it. Mm-hmm. And then you have some level of, you know, perspective to be able to try to tie all these different things together. So I think I was talking about this. I think it was in this this morning. I did a, a 5.30 a.m. No. <laughs> Zoom call <laughs> with the Greenpeace Board of Directors, which is co-director of the Black Woman, mm. uh, Ebony. And we were talking about one of the greatest examples of the Confederate long, uh, long game is um, the 1876 Hayes-Tilton Compromise, where they actually basically, this is where they gave the South back to the slave owners. And so what happened is um, uh, the Georgia senator understood the long game, and he was, he was saying, well, everyone's, it was a very closely contested presidential election again, the Confederate side went and tried to attack the vote counters again, or you know, setting that stage. But he was like, "Okay, we're not gonna, we're gonna concede the White House. You can have the White House. Give us back the South." And that's what happened. So they pulled the troops out of the South. So then, the, between the Klan and the old slave owners, took back control of the South for a hundred years. They were actually then be able to, to reimpose control. And so you have that, but with the arc of history and these different, you know, resonant pieces, that seat is now held by Raphael Warnock, who won a, in a runoff election, which was created to stop black people from actually being able to take power. Mm-hmm. So that does kind of tie ultimately into this whole liberation battle plan mm-hmm. piece. But this is why these fundamental struggles are taking place in these. It's also why the places that offer the most hope are the places that have been the locus of the Confederacy for so long. That's so good. And I want to talk about the Liberation Battle Plan because we are so much better at lamenting our problems than we are laying out a plan for what we're going to do about it. And one of the things that I've been thinking about as I look at the framers and democracy and pick up the language, not the people, Uh, pick up the aspirations, not the operating values at that time. It is clear that the heirs of the values are with us and working and laying it out. And I was reminded of all of them as you were describing the liberation battle plan and the kind of leaders who we now see emerging. So that's the that's the the hopeful part. Somebody was saying, um, asked me, what are you excited about, about the book? And I was like, I thought about it from when I was like, all, our whole lives, those of us who care about, you know, racial justice and devoted ourselves to that struggle have been told, you know, have been, frankly, patronized, right? So it's like, yes, yes, particularly in politics. That's important. We care about people of color stuff, but we have to win. Mm-hmm. So we, that has to take a back seat so we can do this other stuff over here. But I was like, wait, we're winning. We won Georgia. We mm-hmm. won Arizona. We've won nine of ten elections in Virginia. We flipped Harris County, Texas. We flipped San Diego. And so it's not, if you want to win, you have to look at these places and these people and what the work actually there has been. And so that's the, that, and it was very fascinating in terms of pulling together those pieces, looking at what they've all done, the common elements, very similar elements in each of these different places. And so that's what we have, that's what we wound up calling liberation battle plan of the uh, uh, level five leaders, people who are very personally humble but very demanding for their organization and the cause, strong civic engagement organizations, detailed data-driven plan for civic engagement expansion, and playing the long game. Because each of those places, that leadership core, which are almost all people of color, mainly, and mainly women of color, 
had, were at it for a decade nonstop in terms of building these organizations up into being um, civic engagement powerhouse, because that really is the essence of it. And the, the, the right and the Confederate heirs understand the centrality of democracy and voting far better than our side does, because they know that they, they don't have a majority. So they are so laser focused on stopping people from voting and on putting as many barriers as possible. And we do not have a commensurate level of energy and attention to expand democracy. But that is what has happened in places like Georgia, Right, man. So Susan and I met Stacey Abrams 10 years ago, and she, well, she has a 36-page plan how she was going to transform Georgia. Mm-hmm. And then she said, there's a million and a half eligible, non-voting people of color in Georgia. We lose by 200,000 votes a year. I'm going to go register those people. Mm-hmm. And she steadily went about that over the course of the decade leading to its transformation to the point of where I titled it the Georgia chapter Georgia. That's not one we expected, which is what Joe Biden said on election night, because he didn't realize what was actually happening there Mm -hmm. in terms of doing the work of empowering and expanding democracy and following the lead of these organizations and of these leaders who were doing the transformative work that has led to these places being um, improved and making great progress. And we all... Not on, I don't know about all of us, but a lot of us know about Georgia. There are other places that you talk about that are less well-known, though. Mm-hmm. Right. So Arizona is mm-hmm. like, some of these, it's, I don't know what the right thing, but it's like it's the, you know, sibling doesn't get the right, the right amount of attention. People, it's kind of lost to history that Arizona foiled Trump's coup attempt in 2020. So the whole plan was to focus on Pennsylvania, and so it's to stop, it's the, to force people to vote by absentee because of the whole pandemic, but then to not count those votes early, send Trump's people to the polls election day so their votes would start to come in. And then it was to then claim that once they had the lead, that anything else should be stopped. And then that would, they were going to try to bring the full force of the presidency and the state legislature in, in Pennsylvania to bear. This was the essence of their coup, and they were hard at work on it. Relatively hard to work. This is another takeaway is that Trump and them are actually fairly um, arrogant and lazy. And this is a cautionary to- tale for us is that our future enemies are not necessarily going to be as arrogant and lazy. But then what happened in Arizona, and particularly when the guy at Fox News called Arizona for Biden mm-hmm. and then lost his job for doing that, that it messed with their math because we didn't need Pennsylvania anymore. And so they couldn't just have this whole focus on Pennsylvania. We could, we could still lose Pennsylvania and still win the election because Arizona had been transformed. And so Arizona does not get much attention at all, but it, it was, for one, it was part of Mexico. I think also I didn't learn, I didn't realize until I was writing the book, is I knew that we had the, the U.S. stole most of the Southwest from Mexico because Mexico said you couldn't have slavery. So this was, this was the whole piece around the, you know, the annexation in 1848. I didn't realize that the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo took the majority of the land mass of Mexico from Mexico. And that's what is now Texas and Arizona and New Mexico and the, and the Southwest and parts of California, southern part of California. So Arizona is a very Latino place. And over the past decade, the civic engagement groups there, the level five leaders there, also in a historical resonant piece, right? In, in, in 2010, they had this um, uh, whole bill that was passed around Show Me Your Papers. It's mm-hmm. a very anti-immigrant piece. And it galvanized a whole generation of young people to come out and protest. And first they were sitting on the lawn trying to make a moral witness to the governor and legislature. But then they went into action and they created organizations like Lucha, One Arizona, and Arizona Wins. And over the course of a decade again, expanded the voter population by hundreds of thousands of Latinos so that come 2020, Joe Biden could win um, in, in, in Arizona by 12,000 votes and Native Americans as well. And that the increase in the Native American vote in Arizona, people, I didn't realize Arizona was actually one of the largest Native American populations in the country. The increase in Native American vote was greater than Biden's margin of victory Interesting. in Arizona. So that yeah. is another place that doesn't mm-hmm. get as much attention, but it was equally critical to both flipping the, the ousting Trump and flipping the Senate because Mark Kelly got elected as well. 
I, I want to, one, I want to make sure that you all are thinking about your questions, uh, but I also want to push you a little bit on the level five leaders. Um, that when we think about how we make change, I'm never quite sure whether we give too much attention to individual leadership or not enough mm-hmm. uh, because we do need movements mm-hmm. and we're now all enamored with movements and understanding movements. And we think that it's helpful when you can't quite identify the leaders, but I think I've always been of the school that when you look at something extraordinary that happened, mm-hmm. if you dig into it, there was a leader or two. Mm-hmm. But how are you thinking about this? Yeah, no, that's an interesting <laughs> question. And um, I, I, I do think that it ma- it matters a lot, mm-hmm. and that and and I think it can be overexalted, but also can be underappreciated. Mm-hmm. And that I do feel like I'm saying that you know, Susan, I've been reflecting around you know the work we've done over these you know 30 years that we do feel that the single most high impact thing we've ever done is the back Stacey Abrams in this early mm-hmm. piece, and she has been at it. So we've seen it up close in terms of Georgia creating new Georgia projects. They didn't have much of a very strong civic engagement infrastructure. Getting um, Nakima Williams to become chair of the uh, Georgia Democratic Party, and that creates another piece of the infrastructure. And so, and then similarly in, in, in Arizona, I talk about you know, John Laredo, who played the, you know, part of this level five leader role in Arizona. He did bring together the, all the different competing but progressive entities, practice but competing entities, and said, who here is tired of getting their asses kicked? Mm-hmm. Raise your hand. And people raise their hand and say, well, maybe we should all try to work together. And so I do think it's um, critical. Mm-hmm. But I think it can be, we live in a, we live, like, I mean, it's funny because we have this thing about the great man theory and mm-hmm. then uh, people talk about, you know, it was LBJ who brought the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Well, I was, you know, it was actually more Jimmy Lee Jackson giving his life and people marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. So you have all of that, but that also took leadership, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of, so I think it's, maybe it's a question of where is the locus? Now, the one the other yeah. thing I will say with quickly is mm-hmm. this piece around what do leaders look like? Yeah. And so this is something that I really thought in terms of what Isabel looks and lifted up around this piece around caste and what do leaders look like? And we think leaders look like a, like a, a, a tall, thin white man is usually what leadership actually looks like. But if you look at these examples and these places mm-hmm. in the book that we have transformed, and I do lift up the example of the uh, Montgomery bus boycott, right, where you had the Montgomery Improvement Association, the women's organization, doing the math. We need, you know, this many reams of paper, and then that's, and you cut it in thirds, and that's going to be 17,000 pieces, and that's going to be 54,000, and then we're going to distribute that around the, around the, uh, the city, it was a very well-organized effort by leaders, but who don't look like the kind of leaders mm-hmm. that we are, that we traditionally who get funded and elevated and, and listened to. And I think what comes out in the book is that we need the full bouquet. We need to have the leaders, and it's a certain type of leader. And that type of leader actually understands that you have to build. You have to build. You have to build civic engagement that guided by data guided by data and good information, not just doing work, but know where you need to go and who you need to go and understand that we're doing, it's the long game. We have got to play the long game. You've laid it out. Do you think we're going to do it? <laughs> well, I do want to ask you a question. Cause I, uh-huh. uh, uh, I, I quote you in the book. Right? I ran across yes. that. Yes. <laughs> Quite by surprise. <laughs> but um, the... Well, it's funny because it was going to be the final third of the book was going to mm-hmm. be Once We Win, but it just got to be too much. So <laughs> I made it the last chapter, the epilogue, trying to tease out this question around a new social contract. And what would a social contract look like if it were based upon our values, not just what we could get people to agree to? And so you have done great work on this front in terms of the, the, what you work at Policy Link originally mm-hmm. and then now what you're doing now around mm-hmm. this whole radical imagination piece. Mm-hmm. And so... And so people don't know what I quote in this. So Angela had this whole piece after George Floyd was killed, um, had written a piece in the New York Times. And if you really care about racial justice, one of the things that banks can do, and many banks in this country became viable economic entities by either insuring or tr- uh, uh, 
uh, using their currency for slavery and the mm -hmm. trade of black people. So many people actually got the original resources, then they became profitable. And I was saying, well, you could, banks could forgive mortgage interest for African Americans. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was such a provocative idea. And I was all like, well, that's a very interesting out-of-the-box thing. So I'm kind of interested in your take. Yeah. What, if somebody who's pushed these issues and has tried to lift up more, what's your sense of the appetite or potential for moving these things forward? And I do think that's where we need to go with it. I think that the idea of leaning in to a thriving multiracial democracy and what the governing agenda would look like that advances a thriving multiracial democracy demands our most radical imagination because we haven't done it. And being able to just call out these ideas, because once you say them, I will tell you, after we wrote that op-ed in the New York Times, I was on the phone with the CEO of one of the biggest and most powerful banks in the world talking about, well, what exactly? You know, so it's not like they were going to do everything that we suggested, but it led to that conversation. So I want to go into this, but I also want to read that quote that starts off the epilogue because I just thought it was so powerful that this the, in the epilogue, this is the quote that comes from Nicole Hannah Jones and he uses it. No one cherishes freedom more than those who have not had it. And to this day, black Americans more than any other group, embrace the democratic ideals of a common good. Our founding fathers may not have actually believed in the ideas they espouse, but black people did. For generations, we have believed in this country with a faith that it did not deserve. Black people have seen the worst of America, yet somehow we still believe in its best. I, I had not read that before with the care that I read it when I saw it there. And that's really what we're talking about when we talk about how do we govern for a thriving multiracial democracy. We've got some small examples, and you talk about it in the book, guaranteed income. Guaranteed income is just such a basic idea, the idea that what poor people need is money. And we create huge bureaucracies and all kinds of little tiny programs to help people get out of poverty when what they really need is money. Michael Tubbs and his colleagues in Stockton gave it to them and people used it in ways to improve their lives. Now mayors are doing that all across the country. A hundred cities. A hundred cities. We know that the nation needs people who are prepared for the jobs for the future. It's not just something that would be nice to do. The fate of the nation is dependent on being able to do that. Why would we have people having to go into debt that keeps them from being able to do the thing you want them to do when they get a job, which is participate in the economy? That the idea of forgiving debt and making college free, it's not, it may sound like a wild idea, but we need to do it to move forward. There are so many things like that that are just common sense that we have. We cannot have a thriving multiracial democracy, Steve, if people don't go back and look at the history. Right. Because you can't just drop in, look at where things are now and say, what? You've got to understand how it could be so racialized, this inequality. And that requires going back and looking at the history. And once you look at the history, you know it's going to take repair. And it's going to take big repair. We're not going to solve this problem with early childhood development. It's important. That is an essential piece. It ought to be high quality and everywhere. But what about the people who are 13 now? What about the mother who is 40 and raising a family? We need to do things like forgive debt, make people who want to start businesses able to do that. So I really do think that we have a whole uh, backlog of ideas that have come from foundation-funded innovation that just sits on a shelf. Right. We need to pull it out. Yeah, and that's where I feel like these pieces tied together is that I hope that I've tried to show that we actually have a majority of people who back this type of a vision and that what we are up against are people who have no hesitation to rewrite the entire social contract. I was looking at the thing today and about the uh, New York Times has a piece about... Um, Medicaid expansion. says progressives have advanced Medicaid expansion in X number of states and they're trying to... And I was like, this isn't about progress. We have some people in our society who say people should have health care 
And you have other people are saying they should not. And that's what we're actually. And so the level of which the right and the modern day Confederates are willing to tear up and rewrite the social contract, as we saw with Dobbs and as we saw Clarence Thomas saying is coming for the rest of everybody else. We should then be able to say, OK, let's rethink everything. Let's have universal income. Let's end mm-hmm. poverty. Let's provide is that. And I think these are the things that you've been talking mm-hmm. about. But I feel like that this this moment actually calls for it politically in ways that not enough people fully appreciate. But I think given what we're up against, we should be having equally, if not more bold and radical ideas. And I'm going to go to the questions. But here's one more thing I want to say about that. That part of what we need in our narrative about the thriving multiracial democracy is to face the white fear and angst about how will people thrive when we actually have a governing body that is more influenced by people of color. It is an opportunity for everybody to thrive. And that is the story we're not telling enough. These ideas that we're talking about, while they come out of the oppression that so many people of color are suffering, they address the societal problems that are impacting everybody, including people who are white, people who are white and low income, people who are white and just holding on by their fingernails in the middle class. Because what has kept this country moving forward is that when newcomers who are building family, building community, building their careers, when the government is in partnership and helping them move forward, everybody thrives. Do you agree with that? We I, I do agree it. with it. And I, w- I would just add that. And I think appreciate you raising that uh, point because people don't often, um, when you start talking about racial stuff, people don't hear the rest of it and mm-hmm. whatnot. And so I do think it's important to understand um, the, the level of opposition of some people to the extent of which people have been willing to go to war to actually stop this country from changing, to keep it as a white country. And I even used the example of the, um, them, the book Dying of Whiteness. Right, This guy would mm-hmm. not get health care for himself because he didn't want Obamacare. He said he would rather die. Mm-hmm. He was only in his 40s, and he did die. There, and if that's just an extension of his mindset, but I will actually pick up my gun and fight against people to keep this a white country. So we have to understand that there are people who will do that. At the same time, there are people who will then storm the U.S. Capitol right, mm-hmm. to keep that. There have and have always been progressive white people who have wanted this to be a multiracial democracy and have actually worked to do to move that forward. There were abolitionists. There were people who were actually trying to expand it. There were people in the civil rights movement, Viola Luzo and James Reed, who gave their lives to actually have this become a civil... Heather Heyer in, Heyer in Virginia in 2017. So I think that's an important component as well. So it's not just a question of, yes, this is in the interest of white people as well. Some of those people will not... They don't care. <laughs> they're, they're more threatened, I, you know, but there are others who want this society to be mm-hmm. a multiracial democracy and will gravitate and respond to that. My point is there are enough of them with people of color for us to actually win and, and build a better society. If there is hope for democracy and the of color coalition, how do we propose we respond to anti-democratic courts? Harper versus Moore and gerrymandering states. Well, this gets at this point around the around that, this radical reimagination, mm-hmm. in that I didn't know until they the, the they you know stole that Kavanaugh seat that the size of the Supreme Court has been changed seven times in this country. I didn't history. either. And the Supreme <laughs> Court, you can change the size of the Supreme Court with a majority vote in Congress and the president signing a bill. You can do what? You can change <laughs> the size of the Supreme Court with a majority vote in Congress and the president signing that bill. So that's one way to get at democracy, is expand the court to 13 people, put four new people on it next week, and then we move our whole agenda through, which then will filter down throughout the whole, um, the whole legal system. So it's that type of um, mm-hmm. reimagination that we need to be moving forward. And that leads into this next question, which is how do we win when individual issues are more important than our shared values and interests? Because what you've said would be putting above the whatever the individual issue is that various interest groups coalesce well, around. I, I feel this is, I mean, this was what I was trying to lay out in my, my first book, that there is a new American majority. And I've even more recently kind of, re- I, I didn't even realize it until more recently. I was like, I went back and I, I went and I counted and I checked. It's easier to do on, 
Wikipedia, like the presidential elections, you hit prior election, prior election, prior election. Every, when anything, use presidential elections, I think it's the closest thing we have to a national referendum in this country. And it's the closest thing we have national referendum on values. The largest number of people participate, the largest number of people express the direction that we want to go in. Every presidential election since 1992, the single exception of 2004, the Democratic nominee has gotten more votes. And so there, that is a values proposition around the kind of country, the direction we want to go in, et cetera. And it's only gotten a larger majority in terms of the composition of the country since 92 to now. So I, I feel we have to be more aggressive around laying out the vision and the goals and the direction. I think there's far too much timidity because people feel they're going to lose mm-hmm. on this particular issue or people are going to abandon us, et cetera. But if we lift up a vision saying that nobody should be poor in this country, everybody should actually have it. I listened to one, you know, somebody was saying, why don't we start uh, Social Security at birth mm-hmm. and give people an opportunity to actually pursue their potential and their interest, et cetera. So I think the majority of people, if you put it forward in terms of what kind of society do we want, would actually support that. Um, Derek Hamilton at the New School, Baby Bonds, that is close to what you're saying. Every child born gets money at birth. By the time you're 18, you have the resources to do what you want to do. Another one of those ideas that people are actually debating and they're moving forward. Um, this is an interesting question. In a globalized economy, white supremacy really has no business case. Um, growth demands a multicultural um population. And one of the things I often say about that, Gerald, when I'm thinking about that same thing, is when I mentioned earlier that we're a world nation, what could be more valuable in a world economy than having a population that is connected to the globe through kinship, through language, through custom? Given all of that, uh, why are we in conflict around this? And why aren't business leaders the ones who are championing this more than any other? It's too much timidity still. We still feel that if you move in that direction, then you're going to lose, you know, uh, you know, aggrieved Midwestern, you know, so-called Obama Trump voter, and so that's what paralyzes our politics. But it's inter- it was interesting on the um, there were a hundred different CEOs who who signed the statement against all the voter suppression legislation. But we haven't summoned them to action. We haven't launched a national crusade for democracy. Because you're right, it's a very clear mm-hmm. point. Even It was even clearer. But again, there's so much fear of the ferocity of the right and the conservatives. Even around um, Obamacare and health care. I, I was talking to different CEOs, and I was like, that's a big expense item for a corporation to pay for health care. And so if you had nationalized health care, that's in the interest of the bottom line of all of these different corporations. So why aren't we actually pursuing that? To say nothing of the international global part. I talked about it a little bit in Brown is the New White, but in terms of cultural competence and how Starbucks had to rethink who was giving the direction around what their products were going to be when they expanded into China. Because you can't have people in Seattle saying, here's what the Chinese are going to eat. I mean, you could say it, but you're not going to be in business very long, right? And so there was a greater appreciation just from an economic bottom line of understanding the cultural uh, realities in these different places. But we do not tap it, and we don't um, lean into it in ways that we can. But the point of that is that there's far more potential if we would actually... Um, um, draw upon those lessons as well. And there are groups who are working to try to figure that out. This isn't just sitting dormant, the fact that there has been some buy-in from corporate leaders, because I think that many of them see that the way forward is a thriving multiracial democracy. It makes for a stable environment to do business and so many other things. But there's just so much pushback. If there are other questions, you should get them to me. But I'm going to go back to what you were just talking about before when you talked about all of these interests. And I hear you saying a couple of things. One, I don't think we say it enough. And you correct me if I have it wrong. You were saying... We spend so much time trying to figure out how to get people who are clearly opposed to the agenda that we are talking about and not enough time acknowledging, counting, using, utilizing, building the power that we need to just grab those people who are already there. That's part of what you're saying, right? That's almost the essence of the life. That's the essence of it. So 
But here's, here's what we need to do. We need to really figure out how to promote transformative solidarity. Because we get lost in transactional solidarity, mm. that people see that we have something in common, that we kind of have something in common. People who are working for climate change have something in common with people who are fighting for the rights of people with disabilities, have something in common with women who are concerned about their reproductive rights. Mm-hmm. We have a lot in common with people who are concerned about voting. And we sort of say, I'll support you if you support me. Uh, You sign my petition, I'll show up for your rally. You know, that transactional solidarity. What we need to figure out is transformative solidarity. How do we understand to our deepest level that your issue is my issue, Mm -hmm. that I don't win until you win, and that therefore we need to look at those things that enable us all to win. Voting certainly is one of them right now, and there are others that we could talk about. That kind of transactional solidarity might also be one of the things that we could add to the list Mm -hmm. of what it is that we need to win. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I also do think it's helpful in terms of calling out and clarifying what we're up against Mm -hmm. because that creates a broad if we if we these people who want to celebrate and preserve the confederate statues and monuments who were the architects of buying and selling human beings and were white nationalist mass murderers and they want to preserve that then we ask other people is that what you want right in terms of then it starts to clarify that no we don't that's not the society that we want so I definitely think there's some elements there in terms of clarifying and drawing that distinction. Um, but yeah, no, that's a very interesting point in terms of, it also goes back to values and what are we trying to accomplish, not getting caught up in that, um, um, trying to win over people who aren't going to be with us. Connie Schultz, the columnist in, um, well, based in Ohio, I say Ohio because you know, she's national, but I know her from Ohio. She wrote this piece talking about a cab ride that she had and she was talking, this was during the Obama administration, and the cab driver is saying, Obama hasn't done anything good, and it's been terrible. And then she keeps talking with him, and she finds out that his wife had been sick, and that she had gotten health care, she had gotten health care through Obamacare. And then she just looked at him, and he says, well, I guess he's done one thing, right? And so, <laughs> but I always thought that was an example of the, of the how we kind of perceive this. We, we, we're not going to win these people over to vote for us, and not going to, but then we can govern in their interest. Mm-hmm. And that's, I don't know if that's exactly in this transformative piece, but it wasn't like Rosa Parks and Montgomery Bus Boycott were demanding that black people could be able to sit on the bus. They still wanted everybody to have access to public transportation. Mm-hmm. And so it's that universality of the vision. I do think that's part of what Nicole Hannah-Jones was talking about, is that there's a universality of those people who have borne the brunt of oppression in terms of the kind of society and vision that they want to see that hopefully could get us towards more of that transformative vision you're talking about. Yes. Um, are there any more questions? Because I'm going to... Oh, you have, is that one? Yeah. All right, thank you. This will probably be the last question. Thank you. Would either of you care to comment on a new movement, movement to bring mindfulness and democracy together. Wonderful question. Mm-hmm. Did my wife tell you to ask her that question? <laughs> Actually. So, no, it's, int- well, it's funny because, um, uh, well, my wife is a mental health uh, professional and um, is very much into the whole mindfulness space and meditation. meditates 30 minutes every day and has really kind of used that to center. The people like uh, Deepak Bhargava, it was, you know, from, it used to be a center of community change, have tried to talk about the role of this in terms of a social change movement. And I do feel that there is, um, um, it's difficult to do this work. And it, it, it has an in- impact. And so there's an importance of um, embracing practices such as mindfulness. It's funny, as I mentioned in the acknowledgments, um, of my book, my therapist, I said, everybody should get a therapist, right? And then <laughs> in a podcast, they're like, you said your therapist helped you. How was that? I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? So, but I definitely think that there is, I was, who was I telling me? It was telling the other day about, um, and this is something in terms of our, you know, tenure in this struggle. I think there's something about being in this for the long haul. And that, you know, I talk about how these places went through, it was a 10-year journey, but it's really 
They're, you know, people not 30, 40, 50 years. They've been at the struggle, but there's a cost. And so it's very important, I think, to find out, to find practices and ways that can sustain us in terms of the context of a lot of the intensity and the trauma that a lot of these different things face. So I definitely think that I think it's a fairly unexplored or underdeveloped aspect of the movement in terms of how do we actually support and nurture and sustain people. I think a lot of those mindfulness practices are things that can be impactful in that regard. And, you know, I think that it's really emerging, too. Um, the podcast that I have is called Radical Imagination, and one of the people I interviewed was Adrienne Marie Brown. That if you know her, she really talks about joy, uh, and she talks about how we need to lean into joy. And in the conversation I was having with her, she said something that made such an impression on me. It transformed the way I think about my own engagement and struggle. She said, if you are engaged in trying to change the world, trying to make a difference, and you don't have a vision of joy Mm -hmm. at the end, that your work is incomplete. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's so true. We spend so much time just working on the problem that when I loved in the epilogue that you talked that after we win, I mean, that is the beginning of a vision of joy. Another person that I did a podcast with was uh, Prentice Hemphill. And they really are concerned about collective trauma and acknowledging that it's collective trauma because so many of us feel that we're carrying individual trauma and we're beating up on ourselves because it's holding us back. But if we understand it as collective trauma, it then can lead us to collective healing. And I think this vision of joy and collective healing are all part of what you're asking. And I'm feeling a lot more of this, particularly with younger people who are in the movement, that there's a There's a lot of tension within movements now across age and across generations. And part of it is when, as I joined the movement over 50 years ago, we defined ourselves by how hard we were working. And we, uh, we got points for being exhausted, you know, and, and we, we just, that was just what we were doing. And I find there's a new generation now, which really takes a longer view, understands that you need to take care of yourself and take care of yourself was not even in our language. And so I do think it's more than just emerging. I think it's more than we actually realize. Thank you. I have closing things that I want to say, but I um, mean, yeah, here, let me get it right. <laughs> Hold on. And I'm sure that there must be. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> thank you. And I just wanted to say thank you to the Commonwealth Club and thank you all for coming out. This has been a really good discussion. And when you get into this book, I'm sure you will enjoy it as much as I have. Thank you and good night. <laughs> You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Music